Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. We're good to go. I've got my coffee. I'm I'm feeling good. I'm feeling I, good. I need I need more coffee this morning. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've been having some late nights Aww. and early mornings. Too many in a row. This is a problem. Not all of them were bad. <laughs> Not yeah. all of them were bad. Well, they weren't which really doesn't, bad. Which does so, lead the leave a few of them that could be bad. <laughs> well, the first one I just noticed on my client's Slack, a whole lot of late night discussion going on. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, hey, what's going mm-hmm. on? And I haven't been been working with them that long. And oh, they're, they're like, oh, we, 500 errors everywhere. And then we found a query that wasn't using an index. That ends That's up the being worst. Better is two queries. Yeah, it wasn't using an index on like a, I don't know if it's three gigs or 13 gig table. But that's not that. It, that's it, not that big. It, that's it not that big. Ta- it was taking minutes on the query. Mm, mm-hmm. That'll still do that. Yeah, you'll still have that problem. You, you, it's the um, databases are interesting. The 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 indexing thing is 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 interesting when you think about it, right? Like, yeah. If you have a query not using an index, you you should be alerted to that. <laughs> But also, it's funny that it relies on you knowing the access patterns of your data to add the indexes. Like, yes. if you really, you know what I mean? Like, and, and like indexes have costs to them, right? So you can't just like index everything. Right. So, yeah, it's just interesting. There's, a, there's, there's definitely a lot of a thought process that goes in there. Well, I think that there's a, a movement to actually use like machine learning and those sorts of things to, divine the indexes that you need in the optimal, you know, table layouts and that kind of stuff. Nice. In the database layer. Or you just use something like Datomic where you just don't need to, it's, you can cache it at every level. I don't know what this Datonic is. Datomic is cool, man. Datomic is really cool. What, what, uh, it's a database. It's a database. It's, it's saying it's a database. Doesn't really, it is a database, but it's, it's more than that. It does a lot more than that. It, uh, it's written by the same people who work on Clojure. Um, it was sort of designed by those same folks. And it uses, it, it sort of works at a higher level than most database systems that we typically interact with. But what's really cool is it allows you to have these really, really, really wide data sets and anybody can read from them. Uh, and, everything in the database is like immutable. So you can kind of go back or backwards and forwards in time and find different pieces out and it's cacheable at sort of all these layers. It's, it's very interesting. It's worth, you should find some YouTube videos on it. Yeah, There's several out there. It, it's, it's very it's, cool. It sounds cool. Gotta... It also, the, the, the default query engine, I think uh, that, that most people use is a data log as well. And playing around with that has really made me want data log everywhere. Data log is also fascinating. I also don't know data log. So, so two things to look up today. Yes. Data that's, log. That's my, that's my job at, in these podcasts is to provide you things to go look up. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I, I would talk to you about the things that you should go look up, except for the fact that they're all antiquated. Because I'm old. <laughs> like Max Headroom or something? <laughs> Perfect. Yes. Yes. I remember Max Headroom. Datalog is rad because it... What's the right way to put this? It will work... It It, it is a lower... It's a, it's, a, it's a less powerful, computationally speaking. Like, not powerful like the arbitrary way that we use powerful, but powerful like the actual definition of powerful. Like, it's not Turing complete. Um, so it's not a Turing complete language. So if I have performance problems, I should just use data log. Well, what's cool is because it <laughs> when you work it when you when you drop below something that's like Turing complete, you give up some things, right? You give up the ability to express certain classes of problems or to use. I mean, you just you you lose some computational power, right? 
But the benefit that you get from it is that you're not, um, because you have given up that computational power, you can do things like say something's going to halt. Uh, and you can know that your query is going to halt because you're not, you don't have the level of expressiveness that makes the halting problem undecidable. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like, you're not subject to some of those problems. Now you're, you're giving up a bunch of expressiveness of expressive power when you do that and expressiveness. I'm not even sure if that's really the right word to be using here, Uh, but you're giving up some computational power to gain that benefit, but you do get that as a benefit. Whereas like prologue prologue works at a higher level of computation than data log does. And so because of that, it needs things like the cut operator, which basically tells it to stop at some point, you know, this is good enough. Like don't backtrack anymore. Just, just be done (laughs) because, because you can't know, you can't know if it's going to halt or not. You can't like prove that or data log can. So, so what is the, the use case for data log? I mean, what, what's, the real trade-off that you're making at the end of the day? Well, the benefit to it is that you can express certain problems uh, and know that you can arrive at a solution for them. Like if you've expressed the problem correctly, you can divine a solution to it. Uh, and it works in the same way. It's a it's a logic system, right? It works in the same way that okay. Prolog does, but at a lower computational um, level. And one of the... So, so it makes it really useful in things like querying. Right. If you want to write a query engine using something that you know can terminate is like, that's pretty cool. Like that you can prove terminates. Right. That's pretty rad. Uh, and, and it also, um, yeah, it just, the cool, the other cool thing is like, at least as applied uh, in the sort of database, in the sort of database realm, Data logs provides like a really, really cool, powerful query interface because you can express queries completely out of order. Like you can express these complicated joins uh, completely out of order and, and any, in any order that you want. And there's, there's no penalty to that because it's sort of all like combines down to one thing that's because pr- you, because you can prove it, you can optimize it. So it, it will, it will, even further make my discrete mathematics courses be some of the most important courses I ever took. Probably. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Like (laughs) it's, it's very cool. It's very, very, very cool. So, so when would you want to use SQL over? I don't know. Data log. I don't know. You haven't figured that out yet. No, never. No, I don't know. You you gotta, you gotta push it. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's just, it's just very cool. It's worth looking at. It's worth playing Uh, with. I'll, I'll take a look. It was very like, I went through a whole bunch of tutorials that somebody made at one point, mm-hmm. uh, and it was very enlightening and fun to to kind of stretch my brain in that way. Nice. To, to do some data log stuff. So that was really cool. Nice. Maybe I'll go play, play around with that this afternoon. After yeah. I uh, do some show notes on episode 48 even though we're recording 51 right now <laughs> hey the, yeah don't don't uh don't uh, give away the game <laughs> it's, it's i i'm gonna apologize now it'll be way late this will be this will be a funny apology i think but i'll apologize now that 48 49 and 50 are we can all just release and, 50 today and not really just just release we, 48 and 49 later <laughs> nice what if we Out just release order. all all three of them right now today with Make no it show happen. notes. Yes, no show notes. The, tri- the, the trifecta. I'm doing it right now. So We're not gotta... on the show. No, we have to record a podcast still. Because if we don't record this one, then the next one, we don't have anything. And well, then we're I back can... to our old, our old, we're up to our old tricks again of not releasing on a regular schedule. Okay, since watching us podcast, uh, the intern has started his own podcast. So he's a professional now. I can swing him the mic while I release our podcast. And no, you no, can no. just talk to him. Absolutely not. No, I want, uh, I want you to bring up one of your you late... topics today. You Liam had topics. Does, Liam, no, don't do this. Liam, you had topics. Chris does not like college students. <laughs> I do have topics. Okay. Uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll just I'll just say since I mentioned his his podcast, it's called The Lookout, but I believe it's about all things college. It's like about college life and probably lots of ridiculous things that old people like me will make fun of and be like, Oh yeah, I remember being that dumb. (laughs) 
<laughs> college is not a time that I'm interested in revisiting. I'll say that. <laughs> I sometimes still feel like I'm in college. And then when I'm talking to the college kids after a little bit, I realize that I'm that creepy old guy talking to the college kids who just needs to walk away. <laughs> My dude, that's how I feel doing this podcast with you. What's this creepy old guy doing on this podcast? <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Thanks. <laughs> I love that this has become a bit. I think you're like you're not that much older than me. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I don't think we were in high school together, but we were close to in high school together, age wise. Yes, something like that. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. So uh, I hit. I had two different topics, and I guess it's w- related to what we were already talking about. Is performance and I, I well why the reason why i'm thinking about this is lately i've been dealing with servers throwing lots of errors error reporting services reporting different things thinking about what should be handled what shouldn't be handled what it, is there sometimes that we want things to bubble up and then and then how to deal with the performance issues so uh i guess we we should maybe talk about errors first it seems like so it leads in just errors issues. errors in general well, yeah so like, okay, so let's say you're using an error reporting service like Honey Badger, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and they can get quite not a Not a sponsor of the show. Not a sponsor of the show. I hear that we don't they, have sponsors. We don't have sponsors on the show. I, on this I show. hear that there's some Honey Badger elixir work though. Mm-hmm. But but uh, so so that seems seems right up our alley. So you have you have a service like this. You pay for it. It costs money, so yes. and That's, and the more yes. the more data you send it, the more it costs. So yes. ideally, you want less errors. Well, you always want less errors, right? Anyway, and the reason you want errors reported is so that you can fix them. Ideally, not let them sit for months on end. And so I I'm curious is there is there a time that you you find an error in a system like that? And you want the error to keep reporting. Is there any type of error or situation that you've run into where you're like, I'm not going to fix that. Maybe it doesn't happen that often, but you're not not fixing it because it doesn't happen that often. It's because when it happens, you really do want somebody to get notified about it. I think there's a really important distinction that's underneath the question that you're asking here. Which is, it's the distinction between reporting errors and notifying somebody, um, which I refer to typically as like paging. Like if you're going to get paged, there's a difference between surfacing errors and ensuring that people can see that there's errors and notifying someone about the errors. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So I guess there are two different things there, but even the reporting of the errors and surfacing so that somebody can come and look at them at some point in time. Mm -hmm. I I still think that even, is there any type of error that you want to to even make it to that? Or is all the surfacing, hey, surface these so that we can go fix them? Because ideally for me, I want all of those uh, not the one, not the notifiers, but just like the error reporting, like Honey Badger, where you can go ahead and look. I, I want it to. I want to go in there and never see errors. That's like my goal. I think that that's not reasonable. Okay, my hunch is that that's not reasonable. I mean, I, I respect, I respect what you're saying, but I think that there's like, and I, and I think you're right for a certain class of errors. But there's also a class of errors that you probably do want to be aware of but that you can't do anything about. And so that that's what I'm asking about. Like, do you have yeah. any of those? And I, and I'm sure yeah, over sure. the years, like I've, I've run into those. It's always been my goal to have it at zero, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to get there or that I'm just right. going to hide errors to make it go away. Cause that's not a fix. Like I actually right. want to fix it. Well, so one thing that I, I can think of a couple examples I can think of, of things that you can't possibly control are what if somebody's like, sending you've got an api that's on the internet and someone's scanning you well mm-hmm. all those things are going to be 404s like all, all the scans are going to end up being 404s do you want to see those in your reporting do you want to see those in your error logs i mean maybe maybe you want to know that you're getting scanned you want to black hole all that traffic you know up uh, like farther upstream 
right? And if you were to okay. just like hide it, it's not very useful. So Fair. that's that's one thing. You might aggregate all those 404s into one, you know, big bulk set of errors into one category of errors, and you probably don't notify anybody about them. But it's probably useful to be able to see that. Likewise, if someone's sending you uh, a bunch of payloads that are garbage and aren't real JSON, but you're trying to decode them as JSON, well, like, that's an error as well, and you can't control that. You can't stop people from calling your API with, like, garbage. So so, so to, to me, that one, though, should be fixed. Like, when well, somebody calls your API and passes you garbage, instead of throwing an exception, you should just give them back up an error but right, but not, you're probably re- you're probably still returning like a 500, some some class of 500, right? In which case, like the built-in, you know, many of these built-in tools that that capture errors and stuff don't mm-hmm. just look for like crashes or or exceptions. They, you know, if you've got something like built into plug, it's going to say was the status code of this a 500 marked out as an error. Okay. Uh, in which case, like, so yeah, you true. could spend yeah. time to like you know whitelist that one specific use case, but also maybe that's useful. Maybe again, you want to know, hey, somebody's trying to like DOS us or like trying to scan, you know, trying to scan endpoints or trying or, to break something or do or SQL have, injection or whatever. We have cust- even positive things. We have customers who are trying to use our API who are sending us wrong data consistently. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. does that data look like, and should we support that data? Like, is that a problem? Is it a documentation problem? Is it a API issue? Like, how do we how do we solve that? Yep, so. there's all kinds of those kinds of classes of things, and so I, you know, like I said, I think you want to be careful about what you page on, and you probably don't need to page if either of those two scenarios happen. I don't know. Maybe you do. If that's you'll know if you need to do that for your if, use if, case, but you probably you're don't. millions of them, right? Yeah, I mean, you probably don't need to, and so you probably want to actually build some pretty some pretty specific reporting metrics and page on those things and page on stuff that you actually want to, you know, where you want to engage in some actionable feedback. So, have you ever created an exception or bubbled up something to one of these services on purpose? Like, so, so I sure, feel like some of this. Okay, so so what's what's something that you've set that you've intentionally set down when you were writing it? Not later got the exception and thought, oh, I want to keep that. But like you sat down and you said, you know what? I really want this to to throw an exception so that let's say Honey Badger will will let me know about it. Um or my logs. Logs are good too. Like Well, yeah, I mean I I, I tend to add all kinds of important metrics. Um, whether it's time series or something else, to whatever reporting service I'm using, right? Whether that's StatsD or Prometheus or Datadog or whoever I'm sending, also not a sponsor of the show, uh, whoever I'm sending <laughs> uh, metrics to or you know exceptions to, I probably I, I send all kinds of custom stuff in there that's like unique to my application. And again, I don't always report on this stuff. Like I don't always notify or page on it. But that sort of telemetry is important for when I'm diet when I am looking at a real page and I'm trying to diagnose like, okay, why is this going wrong? Oh, it looks like we, we went down to like zero cache hits in our ETS cache. And that's what caused this giant database spike, which led to this, you know, uh, API dropping in availability, that kind of stuff. And so that's how I think about it. I think about it in terms of, of, of those sorts of um, observability and providing insight into the running system. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, what am I going to need to be able to diagnose these sorts of tools? So I'll let a lot of stuff bubble up or, and, and include a lot of like additional metrics that, you know, a lot of these off the shelf providers just don't get for you or can't get for you or, you know, don't know to get for you. So you need to get in there and like instrument it yourself. So you actually get the the metrics that you care about. As for exceptions, you know, those are a little bit trickier. Like, I don't know that I like intentionally throw exceptions with the hope that it will end up in some sort of error APM aggregator thing. So I, I recently chose to keep certain exceptions. Uh, we had an API uh, that we were calling out to and on the way back, you know, you, you got it, originally it was 200 status messages only were being handled and there was no function to handle anything else. It just blew up. 
and and uh, some of those other status messages status messages coming through needed to be handled. Mm-hmm. And when I first went in there to look at it, I did start to say, okay, well, how can I handle all of these? Because these, you know, these are known. You're going to have problems with any sort of external web service. You're going to have different, different status messages coming in. And I ended up only fixing one and saying, I'm going to let the rest of them bubble up and let's fix them one at a time and, and be able to focus instead of like trying to log them out somewhere else. I, I did leave I don't know that I've ever intentionally said I'm I'm going to let this bubble up. I did a couple times do some match errors that I said I don't really know how to handle this right now. I'm just going to let it blow up with a match error, which I have now found I d- I don't find that useful. Uh, you, yeah, you typically don't get quite enough insight into into what's going on if you're trying to like diagnose a problem. The the play when I when I. I do a, a fair amount of explicit matching on on response values. Mostly I do that in order to cause that sort of exception so that I'll cause a crash. And I mm-hmm. do that on purpose because I don't want to make forward progress with bad data. Right. Um, so I'll do that a lot. Or not a lot, a lot, but like I'll do that a fair a fair amount of time. And that tends to work well. But if, you know, for, for me, if I'm calling a downstream service, I make so many downstream calls in my life that a great percentage of them, enough per, of them are just going to like fail. We just right. have to accept that they're going to fail. And so I don't typically handle every failure scenario. Like I don't find there to be a lot of value in that. But what I end up doing is kind of, basically catching all the good stuff and then anything bad, I send it off to like a single place and say, you know, inspect this, log it out, figure it, And then we can like diagnose it later or, okay. you know, shove some metadata into an, an exception that I'll then bubble up to our APM collector or whatever it is. That's more the kind of stuff I do. I, I, I tend to, you know, grab broad kind of metrics about this is a cash miss, cash miss or, uh, this was an error and like send that as time series, but I don't get very granular with it. Cause I just don't find that to be, you know, super, super useful. And it, it you know, and gr- grossly increases the cardinality of like all your, of all your metrics and that kind of stuff, which See, makes it harder to ingest and all these kinds of things. I like that you're purposely grabbing it though, and packaging it up with some other metadata and stuff for you for later and sending, sending it off instead of just having, uh, a pattern match in a function that it won't ever match. And so you're, you're counting on this error that, you know, I've, I've seen it over and over where it's like, Hey, there will be enough data that this function got sent to it that we'll see in the pattern match error that we'll be able to figure it out. And, and it's wrong. No, you can't. Uh, there's often way more that you need. And if you sit down and actively think about what you're going to need, you'll start to look and say, oh, well, it's not going to have this and this and this and this, but you actually have to put yourself in the situation of what happens when when this does fail. What information will I really need? Right. Because uh, it's not always what's passed to your function, and it might be two levels up before you actually see what the what you really needed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and that's also why I do a lot of explicit matching and do allow the matchers to occur, especially if I've got processes dedicated to those things that I can you know, comfortably allow to fail. Yeah. Because I just want to stop it. Like I don't, you know, if I get bad data, I don't want to recover from bad data at every level of function call. Fair. I just want to stop and be like, no, this was bad. Do over. So I, I, I get torn there. I, I agree. And I'm there sometimes. And, but there, there is a cost to that, to that restarting time, whatever. There's lots of different costs and, and lots mm-hmm. of things to think about. So is, I guess there, there's a, there's a threshold, I guess you have to hit like timing. wise. like what, what causes you to say, I need to take this to the next level and not just let it crash. I think you're more, I'm more likely to, to not just let things crash when there's remediation that I might be able to take. Like if the computer, if the system can f- 
figure out how to get back to a good state or if there's an expectation that this is going to be common and we need a way to move forward after this happens, then I'm more likely to, to explicitly match on it and then try to recover or handle that because that's going to degrade better. Uh, you know, you're going to have a, gr- a more graceful degradation uh, when things do start to go bad. If you can get in the middle of that process mm-hmm. and start to try to do that remediation at the system level. Uh, sometimes you can't, you know, you, sometimes you just can't make forward progress and you don't want to make forward progress. And there's really nothing you can do to recover from it. So you just have to like try again. Sometimes there is like, you know, the example of calling some downstream service. Well, we just expect that to fail some percentage of the time, you know, it's just, that's just going to be how that is. And so the remediation might be return a, you know, uh, re- return a, a good value back to the client, the caller, so they can make an informed decision about what to do. And I'm thinking in this case of if some phone somewhere uses your API mm-hmm. and sends you a request and a downstream service gives you a 401, says, nah, that person's not authenticated anymore. You need to go re-authenticate. Well, we need to return that all the way back to the phone. And they need to go re-authenticate so that they can... Try the try the thing over again. If we were to swallow that and then not return that, and like, you know, they wouldn't. There would be no remediation at that point, and the client wouldn't be able to recover and and make its choices. So in some cases, you have to you know return this stuff, this information, so that other people can make good decisions. And that's like a, a more that that's a larger example, or mm-hmm. it's a, a more system wide example. But there's plenty of times in your code where you want to try going somewhere else. So, you know, some call might fail, but you still want to do some other thing. Like maybe you've got a cache, an ETS cache in front of, in front of a database and you go and you check the cache and there's nothing in the cache. Well, then you make a database call. You probably don't want to like explicitly match on there being nothing in the cache because you expect that to fail some of the time. Right. Or, or maybe you're using like a less ephemeral cache, like not an ETS table, but you're using something like Redis or memcache. So you make a call to that thing, but the Redis might be down. Uh, and so the Redis is down, you get an error, but you still want to like try to make forward progress. So the remediation step is you now you go to the database. Do if you the do Redis that same, cache is down. Do you do that same thing with a database being down? Or do you just let that bubble? Uh, it depends. Like if, if we've gone through, if the database is like where the buck stops, if the database is the final thing, and if that's down, we can't service you good data then we might have to reservice that error. If we're in some background process or something that's asynchronous and not in the critical path of a request, uh, then maybe we'll just crash and we'll try again later. So if you need to return a value back to the client, um, because you're you're not just going to return a 500, you want to return something that has some insight into it. Mm -hmm. And once you get to the database, the database is down. Well, you might circuit break around the database. You might not call the database again if you know that it's down. But you're at least going to, you're going to return a good value still. And you're going to handle that explicitly. Even if you don't handle every single possible error that could happen, whether it's a timeout or the database is gone or a connection is dropped or the, the queue time on the pool got too high, whatever, whatever the exception may be, you still want to return something. And again, you might circuit break around that or whatever. So you said circuit break there twice. Uh, I, th- I think it's important to just touch on on what that is. So cir- circuit breakers, if you haven't used them, I should bring Liam over here and have him tell you what it is because he just finished doing it. <laughs> he was reading all about them. But a circuit breaker is just like a circuit breaker at your house. You get too many errors going through it and it shuts off and it doesn't mm-hmm. allow. Sometimes you can set them up to where they just maybe aren't, aren't reporting the errors anymore. The errors still happen, but they kind of get blocked and swallowed for a little bit so that you're not overwhelmed. Your system's not overwhelmed. Or you can set up your circuit breaker to actually stop a request before it ever goes out and mm-hmm. say, uh-uh, we're not gonna, even going to try. So I use them a lot in front of services. Um, especially because if I start failing, maybe I start retrying too fast. And I also don't want the service to, um, rate limit me because Mm -hmm. I've bombed the heck out of them. So I'll put a circuit breaker in to say, Hey, you know what? We're only going to, we're only going to retry with that service for five times. And then we're going to stop with the service for, you could set them up to be automatic, come back on in a minute and allow the service to go back through or, uh, have human intervention depending Mm -hmm. on 
on what you need, but yep, that's circuit breakers are awesome. Yeah, so circuit breakers are are a very useful tool, and they do two really distinct things. One is they keep you healthy mm-hmm. because you can imagine if you've got some downstream service and you've got large timeouts on your you know HTTP calls. Well, you might be sitting every call that you're making might be sitting there taking a, a second, two seconds. I mean, the default for some of the you know off the shelf. Uh, HTTP clients in Elixir, five seconds. So you might be sitting there for five seconds in the critical path of a request waiting. The other trick is that most of the time you've got a pool of HTTP connections, of TCP connections like held open uh, to try to reuse those connections going to the same domain. So if you've got some service somewhere, you're going to hold open in number of connections. And if you don't change it, it's 10 by default in Hackney, at least. Mm-hmm. And so... If you get more than 10 requests, all of which are now taking five seconds each, you will quickly exhaust your pool. And when that happens, you get overload on your system. Now your system can't keep up with the amount of requests that are that you're receiving. Because you only need, you know, you think about it, if you make one request to a downstream thing for every request that comes in, and those requests come in at a lower time, in a lower time than five seconds, and you have more than 10 that arrive at your service, well, now you're overloaded. You, and now you've da- got a queue, and you're going to overload your queue. And that downstream service can be any, it doesn't have to be a web, it could be a database. And, yes, and it can I, be any, any external thing. I, I see that as often treated differently. Like we, like it's treated like it's, the database yeah. is never going to be the problem. Actually, a lot of times it's your setup of your database and your queries that are the problem. Yeah, <laughs> indexes. Yep, indexes. indexes. It yeah, turns out indexes are hard. And super important. <laughs> and, and important. You want them is the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I so actually the the query that I was looking at the other day is we needed an event out of the database that happened uh, closest to a time that was given. And that and that event could be uh, past the time or before the time. Hmm. And so there was an order in the SQL query that mm-hmm. was doing some math and it took the time stamp of that event and then subtracted it from the time that you passed in and did an absolute value and ordered that way. So that mm-hmm. you just pick and then limit one. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is once you are doing that timestamp math, especially in an order by, you are now hitting every single thing in the database that matches your your where clause and having to do some calculations so there's no indexing it's going through each record um, Did, was this postgres by chance no it, it's a oh, okay. postgres like right, thing um, oh, okay yeah we can talk about that cause, offline cuz post, postgres has uh, very efficient range queries over times oh but but yeah yeah, so you could just say I'm looking for something close and shrink within, it within within this range within yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it, and, it's and then pick really the best good. one. Well, yeah. but what I found out is anyway, but it, it sounds way, like you can't use that. Way better is two queries. I so what I did is I just sat back and I thought for a while, and I think that's like the first step whenever you're dealing with performance problems, lots of exceptions, anything like that, is to sit back and think about like what what do I really need from this, and all I really cared about was the two closest times one before and one after the time that I passed in and then programmatically pick which one was actually closer. So I turned it into two different queries, but they could use the index. And so we went from queries lasting minutes to clear queries, little sub second, like right. Sure. Normal queries Mm -hmm. that you would expect. Yeah. And although there are two of them, you can add them up and, they're still faster than the one. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Well, and so the other trick to this, and, and like the other, the thing I was going to say about circuit breakers, uh, and it kind of leans into this, is that mm-hmm. it doesn't just give you a chance to heal and, and stop overload from happening, but it gives the downstream service a chance to heal and stop over and, and, right. and allows them to recover. Because if they get behind, uh, and you do see this in databases, like you see this when you get really slow queries, all of a sudden, the da- everything about the database starts going slow. 
because it's using up all these resources to do these like really expensive things. So if you just stop sending it queries or you stop sending requests to it, it gives it a chance to get to, to solve that overload problem and for it to get caught back up and you take some of the pressure off of it again. So thinking of it in that way, have you ever put a circuit breaker out at the very edge of your system so that at like incoming requests to your system, you can say, hey, we've we've got too many errors going on right now. Just, hey, we'll be back up in a minute. And it just returns them a static response. You can certainly do that. And um, we that is that's actually the way that Bleacher Report's front door works. Okay. Um, way out in front of us, in front of even like any Elixir thing, is a proxy. And if there's enough errors that start going through that proxy and the front door can't keep up, like our front door gateway API thing can't keep up, mm-hmm. then eventually that thing way out in front of us falls over to a static site. Nice. And and like we don't, you know, we basically we're uninvolved at that point. Things have to go very, very wrong for that to happen. Mm-hmm. But it's there. And so the idea being that you just never, you, you never don't show information. You never don't show data. Right. You always show something. And yeah, that's that's a thing to do. Um, you, you can totally do that. There's a couple other tricks to sort of relieving downstream services. I mean, at the end of the day, like circuit breakers are kind of a hammer. They're a very blunt instrument. And you can get in, if you don't tune them correctly, you can get into these problems where the downstream thing, you know, you're upstream calling a downstream service. The downstream service isn't able to catch up. Most often this is because somebody just deployed a change that, you know, negatively impacted performance somehow. It's not really a thing that you catch that often when you're going through a QA cycle or unit test or anything like that. You cause some performance degradation uh, that you weren't able to find beforehand. Might be slow database calls or whatever it is. And so you circuit break because you're all you're calling this downstream service. It gets overloaded because queues and <laughs> you stop calling it. So you blow the circuit that allows it to start to heal. But if you don't tune how many errors you let through, how many new requests you let through, how long you break for all that kind of stuff, what ends up happening is you break your circuit. You stop calling it just long enough for it to start to heal. You send a couple requests through. They look like they're good. And then you like turn the fire hose back on and you kill the service again. And you just do that over and over and over again. Uh, while the down and the downstream thing never really gets a chance to fully heal. And that's because, like I said, like circuit breakers are very much like a blunt instrument. Like they just shut off traffic and they they turn it all back on all at once. And so there's a couple ways to mitigate that. One is to just not use circuit breakers and instead to use adaptive pooling. So instead of having a hundred, you know, our default for all of our services is like we create a hundred TCP connections to every downstream thing because we're using HTTP one for reasons and that sucks. So you can't multiplex over it. It's slow protocol, all these kinds of problems. But mm-hmm. in any case, you send everything over HTTP one. We'll open like a hundred TCP connections for every downstream, uh, for every downstream service that we have. So what you could do is you could take that pool and you could start it at very small, let's say 10 and as you get healthy requests, you additively increase the amount of TCP connections that you're going to allow to the downstream service. And that you know just can just grow and grow and grow and grow mm-hmm. um, to some upper bound. And then at some point, you're going to hit this, this point where you now you're allowing too much stuff to the downstream service. And now it's starting to fall over. It can't keep up with that anymore. Because you, know, you can think about it. Every one of those 100 TCP connections is a pipe. It's a, it's a queue. Like you're waiting in line to get onto the, it's a teller at the bank. You know, you're, you're waiting uh, in line to be served uh, and get your money out and, and make that request. And so the more tellers you have, the more things you can send. But at some point, the bank's going to run out of money because you're, you're, you're all getting there too fast. So what, when that happens, you back off the amount of TCP connections that you have open exponentially fast. So you start removing them multiplicatively. And you start just like reducing the the size very very quickly, and that allows that typically allows you to converge at sort of this like steady state point mm-hmm. and 
keep your services like at some like level of healthy. So if they get some spike, you start backing off the amount of connections that you're going to allow. If they recover from that spike, you increase your amount of connections that you allow. And then the system becomes this like living thing where it can adapt to problems that start to occur. Where circuit breakers don't give you this sort of like level of granularity. It's like on or off. Um, and so that's like that's one of their downsides. They're a super useful tool, but you know, they're they're not always the most useful. So I when you when you're describing that <clears throat> just in my head, I picture like a a levee opening up. You know, they doesn't just they don't just throw the doors open and let all the water through. <laughs> it like yeah. slowly moves the door up. Right. Yeah. And and some circuit breakers are better than others in their ability to to allow graceful amounts of traffic back through. And if they see errors, they start backing off again. But what you end up with is something like what I'm describing, where you do this sort of adaptive pool thing, where you 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 sort of adjust the amount of tellers at the bank until you get the optimal amount. So we've talked about how to handle it, but how do you, what are some of the things that you do to find where the performance issue, like the root cause, like what do you, do you have any, any root cause analysis type suggestions? Oh man, that's tricky. I mean, number one, all of this will hinge on your ability to get insight into your system. Any sort of analysis into a problem completely relies on your ability to actually be able to see what's going on, which is also why I say like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of like silencing errors. Like I'd rather have that information in some log somewhere where I can go and kind of try to track down like what happened beyond that though. If you, if you have good visibility into what is happening right now and also what has happened in the past, and you can look at sort of seasonal patterns uh, and see, you know, how things are, are, are moving around in your system on a, on a somewhat regular basis. The thing that helps me the most with debugging, this is going to sound dumb or like it's going to sound contrived, mm-hmm. but it's like the scientific method, you, you know, like sit there and make a hypothesis about what you think it could be. And that hypothesis needs to be grounded in some amount of reality, you know, it's not it, as much as we always is as, as like it's a meme to complain about, you know, your AWS network or whatever. That's that's not typically the cause. It's not that somebody, you know, flipped like LS to the wrong directory and, and <laughs> it, you know, AWS East again. It's not really that likely that it's that it's the AWS network that is like your root cause problem. It's not that RDS is like having a bad day. It's like probably something within your control, especially if it's something that just started happening. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time, that's going to be the case. And so you, you you ground your actual hypothesis in some sense of reality, right? You don't go, oh, it's probably the Linux kernel drivers that we need to optimize. <laughs> it's like, nah, dog, like you miss, you're missing an index on your database. Like it's not that complicated. So you make a guess, you make an educated guess about why the thing is happening and you can state it like i think this i think it's this because of this and here's how i'm going to validate it and then you go see if you can validate it and you give up your hypothesis when you prove it wrong right and and you just do that iteratively over and over again you continue thinking like you continue grounding a hypothesis with real information that you're looking at like use your eyes look at what's actually happening and diagnose it and figure that, and, and then you can start to really figure that stuff, kind of, that kind of stuff out. The and, other thing is you have to look at the right stuff. You have to look at, you know, you know if, you, if you have any amount of scale at all, at, like literally at all, you can't look at, okay, APM providers, none of which sponsor the show, so I can say these things <laughs> with, 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 with little fear of reprisal. Never show me an average ever again. <laughs> I never want to see an average anything ever again. Thanks There's for backing away from are that, not, Mike. <laughs> averages aren't useful. They're not. They're 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 not telling you anything meaningful. And most of the time, they're hiding the actual problems. Mm-hmm. So go look. Give me a. Give me ninety fifth and above. That's, Don't give uh, me yes, anything below ninety fifth. Thank you. Literally Thank you. nothing below ninety fifth is useful to me. Right. Um, so show me, I don't care if you just only want to show me the 95th and I, up. I'm okay with That's that. That's fine. I'll yeah. take that. I'll take yeah. that any day of the week. I've been using Keen, Keen IO lately. 
And mm-hmm. one of the things that you can pick is percentile. And that I usually start at 95. I put it at 95 and I say, are, are we are we handling 95% good enough? All right, because let me bump it your up. Errors aren't, your errors aren't coming from your average responses. Not often. Not right. like the times where you get exceptions. That's not happening on the in the average case. Mm-hmm. It's happening in the outlier. And it's happening in the outlier that's slow. Unless so all you your have averages to, are bad. <laughs> right, yeah. But in that case, like... You've probably tuned everything that doesn't matter anyway. So, yeah, only show me, like, I want to see 95th, 99th, and max. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's it. That's all I want to see. Um, yep. And maybe some, like, coarser granularities of 99th. But, like, all those things that, like, start there, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and don't look at the averages because the averages are going to, it's going to look like everything's fine. That's, that's been it's my not going to be fine. Every piece of performance monitoring is always like, why? Why are you showing me these? I think this is this is it, it's it's a feel. It makes you feel good though, and I think yeah, a lot of people it's just useless. you know you're you're going to continue to pay them because they make you feel good when you look at their information. Well, and it's an, it's yeah, it's it's an easy thing to calculate. I don't know, whatever it's it, but like if you're trying to actually get down to why something's broken. Just just ignore literally every average that you're seeing because they'll all lie to you. They'll all make you feel like there's really not a problem. And you may not even notice that a large percentage or you know, potentially one percent or five percent of your of your problems, of your slowest requests are all taking five seconds. Like you just may not see that. Right. Because you have your, enough your average might still be. Right. 200 milliseconds. <laughs> right. Or lower. Like I've yeah. seen this happen. I've seen, I've literally seen that happen because you just have enough traffic and there's such a huge, you know, the standard deviation is massive. Mm-hmm. You can um, show me standard the, deviation too, along with the percentiles. Just, yeah, I'll take that. that mm-hmm. That's, that's good information because if I can see that my, my data is swinging a lot back and forth, that that's important too. Even if my 95th percentile is good to me, that's an early warning sign. Like, hey, I probably have something. My max is probably going to be bad. Mm-hmm. Yes, I completely agree with that. And and so, yeah, that's how I start to diagnose it. I make a hypothesis. I mean, not like out loud, but and and I have an intuition at this point, having done this for enough years, that I I think I'm decent at debugging, especially production issues. Like, I just I, I don't know. I have an intuition about like I think it's probably this. I, you, I, and you develop that over over time. Yeah, you do, and and I, I, it's easy to get into uh, when you've done it for a while, or, or and at the beginning of a career. But in the middle, it seems to go away. But I notice a lot of at the beginning of the career, and people have been doing it a while. The it, you go from hypothesis to fixing, mm-hmm. uh, and and your idea of proving that that's the problem is when I fix it, I'll prove it. And so you spend a lot of time fixing and pushing it out there to only either make it worse or leave it the same. Right. And you're typically fixing the wrong thing. Right. right. I've, I've also fixed things before. This is the other thing. When you fix a problem, sometimes you're going to uncover a lot more problems. You fix one service. So now you have more throughput to the rest of your services and they all start falling down. You're like, Oh crap. (laughs) Yeah. You have some queue, essentially some queue in front of, you know, a slow database, but the slow database never has a problem because you have this queue. Well, if you take the queue out of the way or you make the queue like really, really big. Now all of a sudden your database starts falling over. Right. You can't handle it anymore. Right. You've, you've and opened that's the a very, floodgate, right? Yes. Yeah. That's a very common thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I love I love this idea of like, yeah, you jump immediately into the fixing it. Mm-hmm. And you haven't even really stepped back and said like, what's the real problem here? And it's like, now you're going to go, you know, rewrite this thing and go because it's just too slow. When in all, all reality, it's like, no, you just had a queue in front of it. It's like, you know, that was the real problem. The real problem is that. You uh, you have this big timeout thing, this big sleep right here in the mm-hmm. middle of your code. Like maybe we should just remove that. Nah, I think we should rewrite it and go. <laughs> It'll be faster. That that's that's the other thing that I've 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 been hearing lately is um, I've heard it in the Elixir community. People coming over from from other languages and writing in Elixir because of performance 
And then they write the code and they're like, I thought this was going to be faster because it's Elixir. And it, right. No, it's not. The language isn't just going to suddenly make everything roses, right? It's not going to be perfect. Right. You still have to think about what you're doing. And then when you fix the problem, when you know that you're going to fix a problem, maybe you should look at the things downstream from where that problem is and try to think about what's going to happen when you, when you pull away yeah. that blockage. There's all kinds of system effects that start to take place in the, in this kind of stuff. And yeah, I think you're totally on to something like, it seems like people kind of regress in this middle phase of their career where it's, it's almost like they have enough knowledge to say the words Linux kernel driver, but they're not really <laughs> certain that that's like, they don't have enough to know that's like definitely not the problem. But also there's some amount of like shininess to that. Like if it's the Linux kernel driver, I get to go fix the Linux kernel driver or like right. whatever, you know? Yeah. It's like, that's the motivating factor. And I think that ends up happening a lot uh, in sort of, yeah, the mid stages of, you know, just enough to know the words, but don't know enough to know it's like definitely not the problem. Right. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, it's that's prob- what, but that's the scientific method thing. Like if you just stick to the scientific method stuff and you be honest with yourself about it, like yeah. you'll, you'll find the problem very quickly. It's never that Google is down except for when Google is actually yeah. down, but you yeah. better make sure you have checked. <laughs> AW East isn't probably down. <laughs> it is down occasionally, but right now, right after you deployed something, it's probably not just <laughs> magically down. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So. And and uh hex being down is probably not why your why your deploy is not going through. Right. That, yeah. that was something I ran into recently too. Is somebody was like, no, nah, hex is down. Uh, well, it's not for me. <laughs> it's it's working just fine. Oh, you had a proxy. And, and you were on a VPN that doesn't allow you to get to Hex while you were trying to deploy. That was really the problem. Right. Yes. It's, <laughs> there's always so many of those things. The VPNs, they'll get you every yes. time. Yes. Ask somebody else if Hex is down before you say Hex is down or GitHub's down. Okay, we can't deploy GitHub's down. Your Wi-Fi's off. Oh. <laughs> it's like when you can't put in your password and you and you call the help desk at work and you're like, Hey, I need my password reset. And instead they come by and turn off the caps lock on your keyboard and walk away. And you're like, oh, thanks. <laughs> I like your face when I make you laugh. It doesn't happen very often. Cause I'm not that funny. <laughs> it, it, happens. It, it happens. These things happen. It happens. I, ho- I hope, I hope to be able to make you laugh one time at ElixirConf. That's my goal. I'm sure it'll happen. So I'm your sure goal is to stay straight face the whole time that I'm around you. Okay. All right. I can do that. <laughs> oh, man. I got to get going today. And we're we're coming up on an hour. So we should probably All let right. people go. Sounds good. Got any final words of wisdom? No. All right. Let's get off here and release some shows then. All right. Make it right. happen. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Later.